guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we got a fun episode for you here today. We've got Bob Garretson, who is basically Porsche royalty, in my opinion. Iconic race driver and his Team owner and and everything else. You know, he's he's one of the guys that spent a lot of time in the old War Horse, which is the car that you see on the wall next to me here at the studio all the time and i'm obviously i'm obsessed with this car (laughs) and i'm obsessed with everything that surrounded this car it's it's got a huge legacy so i called up bob and i've interviewed him a couple of times now once for some different publications and now he again for the podcast he's like yeah sure i'll come on the podcast so we talked to him and i want to dig into his life a little bit too and get a little bit more backstory because a lot of it is always revolved around this car which is kind of inevitable because it is such a big part of his life okay so we talk a little bit about you know um obviously i the interview is already done as i'm as i'm <laughs> you know kind of saying this you weren't you weren't there but you did listen to it i did and it really is cool some of the stories that yeah you know he relays so we'll talk to we'll have his interview on it a little bit um the rally applications are still coming in Mm -hmm. and the sales purchases for the tickets are still coming in but i just want to remind everybody the applications i'm not taking anymore after august 21st that's the cutoff that's the cutoff and the sales will end september 1st right so i can order shirts order the rest of the rally decals order the maps because i don't want to order too many of anything because this is money right yes it so is so <laughs> i i don't want to have a bunch of this crap left over so like people to me in have the past. two weeks left two to weeks apply. left two weeks left to apply three weeks left to buy your tickets once you're so, accepted once you're accepted absolutely so, um before we get into our interview with uh bob i do want to mention my fiasco today you have a fiasco i have a fiasco i as you may you have seen you tease me whenever i say oh it was a yeah fiasco. but this actually this actually right, let's hear let's this let's, isn't let's oh decide. i got this isn't oh i got free air conditioning okay this is <laughs> it's not that kind of fiasco so i as you may have noticed on my instagram i've been doing a lot of burnouts and drifting around or whatever <laughs> yeah, as yeah, you yeah, do. yeah as i do but a little bit more lately because okay. my tires are shot they're done ah, so they're that done. gives you a little uh, gives me a little, ah, let's tear them up a little yeah. bit right? let's tear them up well, anyway not only that it, you know you can slide a little easier let's, yeah, a little yeah, less yeah. coefficient of friction there definitely so i decided i need new tires so i bought new tires i got some you know in in 205 60 and 215 60 15 there's virtually no options they, okay. they they're all terrible all the options are terrible unless you go with like a classic tire because you have the flares now so you're running a staggered yeah which set. it's amazing that you you mentioned that um that my car is, is staggered so i go to the tire shop with the tires give them the tires and get the tires put on i leave to come here and i get here and i get out and i walk out and i turn around and look at the cars i always do because yeah. i'm in love with it and infatuated yeah. with it and i go wait a second <laughs> i look at the tires and I go, oh no! So I walk up and I look at the front. Uh-huh. Sure enough, it says two fifteen on it. I'm like, no. Go to the back. Yeah, two o five. So they they transpose the tires. The two fifteens are on the front, and the two o fives are on the rear. And this is the second time this year. Yes, this, this is happening. With one what of your is going on with the tire monkeys? <laughs> I just, I the wheels don't even look the same. Right. Like if you look at them, they are ob- the lip is. The width is on the outside. It's right there. You can see. So did they? The tires don't look the same either. They visibly look different when you look at them. You can see that they're not the same. Let me let me clarify how terribly they screwed up. So did they put the correct tire on the correct wheel and just put the no. wide wheel up front? No, 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 no. No, so the wide wheel's still in the back where it should be, yes. but they put the wider tire on the skinnier wheel. Yeah, so I called them. I'm like, hey, and this is after, okay. Anytime I take the car somewhere to have something done, <laughs> I'm an asshole that has a Porsche. <laughs> I am. I'm the asshole that has a Porsche. This guy, uh, there was a customer there that was really cool. He's like, hey, you know, I used to play a lot of foosball. I'm like, okay. Okay. 
And my buddy won a 911 Targa in 1974 playing foosball. What? And I go, are Where's you kidding me? That guy on He's the like, podcast. Yeah. We had a we had this place called uh, it was at the it was a tournament at the Radisson South. And we had 300 foosball tables set up. Foosball was a big deal. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah. The next year, the guy won like a Corvette or something like that. Wow, that's really crazy. So I went up and. Cool story, right? I mean, I was Absolutely. talking to this guy for a while. He's like, yeah, we drove it around the block a few times and then sold it because we couldn't afford to keep the car because <laughs> oh, yeah. we're just professional foosball t- players. <laughs> so I go up to the front desk and as I'm, it takes about an hour. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to walk across the street. I'm going to get a Red Bull and sit on my phone in the grass in the sun. It's beautiful out. Right. So I go, oh, that guy told me this great story. Did you hear that story? And they go, no, nah, I didn't hear it. And they just weren't nice they weren't nice and this i think this is part of the problem too is i come in and i'm like hey you know the car's really low um you don't have a nussbaum hoist which means the car's not going to fit on your hoist just you know i've had the tires put on here three or four times before i don't know if it's in the notes or something but you got to use a jack Mm -hmm. all right no i didn't even say that i said you won't be able to fit it on your hoist he's like well then how are we supposed to do it i said (laughs) so i go do you have a jack Like, do you have a jack to jack the car up to put the tires on? He's like, yes, we have a jack. And I'm like, well, there you go. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So it already started out kind of right off the bat. So anyway, so now my tires are wrong and everything sucks. And so you haven't taken it back to them yet. No, because I I won't have time tomorrow. I leave to go to Houston to do a film with Alex. That's right. The 997, which you are 991 GT cars, GT2 RS, GT3 RS, 4 liter RS, 3.8 liter RS. Wow. You know, all the different. GT3 GT2 cars. So we're going to be spending some time doing some stuff for a Porsche with that stuff. So I don't I don't have time. I got to go yeah. home after this, after I, at late when I'm finished producing or whatever and then I got to get all my stuff together and then I leave tomorrow morning. So needless to say you are not taking the car. No. No, I am not <laughs> taking the car. I am taking an airplane. Yes. To okay. go down to this. So, so anyway, before we uh, before we get into the meat of the Bob Garrison interview, let's take a moment quickly to share our latest sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your premier source for detailing compounds, pads, and polishes. And really, what happened was after 15 years of experience working with largest brands in the industry, the engineers over at Oberk decided to make one simple, holistic system that really takes the guesswork out of paint correction. You know, whether you're working on a 59 Corvette or a 2018 Porsche, all of Obrick's products are developed to work with any and all paint types. So be sure to check them out over at oberkcarcare.com and use the exclusive Overcrest code OVERCREST to get 15% off any order over $35. And they'll also toss in one of their famous Eagle Edgeless towels for any Overcrest fans. Great. I, uh, I I still don't have one of those edgeless towels. By the way. <laughs> no, you didn't get to try this yet. I keep meaning to bring <laughs> I, I that don't want to get one of those towels. All right. Uh, here we go, guys. Legendary Bob Garretson. Hello. Good evening, Mr. Garretson. This is Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. How's it going? Good. How are you today? Very, very good. It's uh, ex- excellent to be able to talk to you again. I uh, I hope we, I hope we can dig a little bit more in depth into uh, into you and what you did over your racing career this time. Well, okay, we can give it a try. <laughs> so I want to start out a little bit and talk about how you got your passion for cars. If you think back, where do you think it came from? Well, it came from my my brother. My brother was nine years older than I was. And uh, when he got back from World War II, you know, he immediately bought a 32 Ford Roadster, or not Roadster, Coupe. And fiddle around and 
you know, I used to hang around, and then it went to a 36, and then, uh, anyway, then he got married and went away. But, um, uh, so anyway, that's where I got started. So he had built up a business when he was going to uh, USC, uh, working on the weekends on rebuilding flathead Ford engines. Sure. So uh, when I was uh, 17 or so, and uh, he was working away, I picked up on that business as well and um, did that for about four years when I was going to the first time through university. And uh, the passion went from there. Uh, but I got, well, I got involved in uh, early days of drag racing and in Southern California. And uh, it all... I finally got discouraged with it because, you know, there were really no rules and stuff like that. And you knew people were, you know, I had a pretty fast car. And when you got beat, you uh, you wondered whether things were really legal or not. So anyway, then we went that, that to That would not be the first time, and we're going to get into it a little bit later, but that's not the first time that happened to you, is it? <laughs> it yeah. So uh, from there, my, my high school buddy... We were still friends. There was a road race at uh, Hanson Dam in San Fernando Valley. And uh, we went to that and uh, I looked around and I said, gosh, those guys get to drive for 20 minutes and we drive for 20 seconds. Maybe <laughs> maybe there's more, you know, road racing is a better idea. So anyway, I got all interested in it and I... Uh, was saving my money to buy an Austin Healey, and what I went you back. Driving around as a daily driver at that time, what was your kind of your tooling around car? Uh, uh, a, four, a thirty-nine Ford Coupe. Okay, and this is kind of what what time is this? Is this like the fifties or sixties or? No, what this you... is fifties and early sixties. So eventually you got into doing SCCA events with a with a three fifty six. But how did you get into Porsche? In general, well, uh, what happened was is uh, when I was uh, I got drafted during the Korean War and had to go, but I joined the Naval Reserve, so I, if I had to go, I was going to go Navy, not Army. Anyway, so I was in stationed up at Treasure Island in San Francisco, and I went back to a homecoming at uh, UC Santa Barbara, where I had finally ended up going to school. And, uh, you know, talking to some guy, there was an alumni there who I knew the name, but I'd never really met him. Anyway, we were yakking away and talking about cars and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, I'm really interested in Austin Healy. And he says, oh, he says, no, forget it. He says, come with me. <laughs> so he went down and he had just gotten back from Germany with a uh, 54 Super Coupe. Uh, said, let's go for a ride. Well, after we went for one ride, it, it had to then be a Porsche. So I just had started saving my money. But after I got out of the Navy, I went back to school at UC Berkeley because I changed majors from education to engineering. So anyway, fraternity brothers up there, we were out one night, you know, drunk and everything. And coming home, the guy driving the car ran into a tree. I broke my back in three places and all this kind of stuff. 
But, you know, we were friends. You just forgot about the whole thing. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Man. Uh, if I broke my back, I'm not sure I would easily forget that one. I think that one would leave a lasting impression. <laughs> well, it left you know, a lasting impression. But, you know, I mean, we were all attorney brothers. And, you know, you thought my lawsuit was a last thing on your mind, in my mind. But one day, all of a sudden, here comes a check for $5,000 in the mail. Apparently, the insurance company decided to pay us off to keep us quiet. So I went out and I bought a 57 sunroof coupe. Had that car for years. And then a friend of mine had a 59A, which you know had better synchromation, all this kind of stuff. And he was moving to, he'd gotten a job in Germany. So I bought the, his 59 and that's the car I really hot-rotted all up and everything like that. And so is that the car that you uh, th- that you raced with SCCA? No, I didn't. I, SCCA, I didn't race a Porsche. I raced a VW. Okay. With with Porsche engine and brakes and all that and uh, gearbox and all that kind of stuff because sedan racing had just started, and I did that for a couple of years. And my wife said, uh, "You know, I don't think with four kids you ought to be out there <laughs> on a racetrack because." Not that she was worried about me. She said, I'm worried about some other idiot doing something stupid. So I gave up SECA racing and only ran hill climbs and time trials and uh, stuff like that. So was this around the time that you started up Garrettson Enterprises? Is this kind of a similar... No, in 1960, when I graduated from Berkeley, uh, I went to work for Hewlett-Packard. You know, struggling on four kids and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed in the parking lot there were seven 356s. So I asked these people where they got their cars done worked on. And, uh, you know, they had various places. And I said, well, what, you know, why don't you let me do it? So I used to take the cars home at night. And that's where Garris Enterprises started and do whatever I had to do, rebuilding, whatever it was. So are you doing this in your garage at first? Yeah, in my garage at home. Another guy that worked at Hewlett Packard, a guy by the name of Bruce Anderson, uh, you may have heard, he was tech chairman of Porsche Club of America for years. Um, he used to come by, he was a bachelor, he used to come by on his way home from work and wash parts and stuff like that. And finally, he, uh, I left HP and went to Silicon Valley Company in the early days, early, early days. And still was doing this stuff. And he said, well, I don't want to work at HP. Why don't we open up a shop? And his brother had just graduated from Sacramento State, his degree in biology, and couldn't get a job. So Bruce's parents said, look, I'll financially back you guys, rent a building, open up a proper shop. And she went, well, it took off. We had that facility for about a year. And this is in Mountain View, right? Yeah, right. And we had more work than we could handle. I mean, I didn't work there. I just would come by in the evening and stuff like that. And um, uh, so we rented two huge industrial parallel buildings and had a shop there with with a dyno room and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Finally, we it just wasn't convenient. You know, two long, narrow buildings were not conducive to an auto shop. So about that time, my parents had both died, and my brother and I inherited some money. Uh, I found a lot in Mountain View, and 
he and I built a purpose-built building. We had uh, seven lifts and a dyno room and a machine shop and a parts sales and, you know, a big, a big place. So when did it occur to you that you could start prepping race cars and, and doing that kind of thing? Was that right away or did that kind of develop on well, its own? Well, no, in, in um, 75 and 76, we prepared a, a, a GTU car for Walt Moss, uh, 914.6, and he won the IMSA uh, GTU championship. And I was going, you know, didn't think too much about it, but that uh, I just knew that, uh, you know, we, we had great people. And matter of fact, Jerry Woods Enterprises, he was the engine builder and uh, German Precision Machines, how he was our machinist. All these guys went on. Well, I'll bet that's more, I'll get into that story. But so anyway, I went down to, I was at Laguna Seca in 77. I had uh, autocrossed and time trial against Dick Barber. Uh, so we knew each other pretty well and uh, <clears throat> matter of fact he had he had tried to get me to come in business and run his service department for his Porsche dealership he had in San Diego for a while anyway in 77 he came to Laguna Seca with a 934 and a half uh, which was the predecessor of the 35 of course and uh DNF, and he had DNF a couple other times at other Riverside and so on. So, so for I said, that I said, not know what's a nine thirty four. What's the difference between a nine thirty four and a nine thirty five? Uh, uh, quite a bit. The uh, thirty four had uh, uh, was more more a stock a nine thirty turbo than a thirty five was. Only it had. A, I don't even know if it had a fuel cell. I can't remember or not. But it was just. Single turbo, big uh, K, 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 single turbo. It had to have, um, in, it had, because it was a 930 derivative, it had to have the CIS injection system that, uh, the, 930, that the 930 had for the road car. Well, that was a pain in the butt and nobody, it was just trouble all the way. And the American drivers convinced uh, IMSA that they ought to make a nine, allow a 935 and a half, which was a mechanical injected car now. Still not with all the aero, quite all the aerodynamics and uh, stuff that the uh, 35 eventually had in 78. And, well, anyway, I talked in the bar where he failed, so I Next race that I saw him was at Sears Point uh, in Finian Raceway or whatever you want to call it. And he again failed. I said, Barbara, I said, you know, you got the wrong people preparing your car. You ought to let us do it. So he <laughs> looked at me and said, well, okay. So he told his driver to drive the truck and car and everything down to us. And we prepared the car for Road Atlanta, which was the next race. So this is, is this 1976-77 kind of in there? Yeah, well, this was, yeah, 77, yeah. And so we prepared the car for Road Atlanta, and of course he finished. Uh, not with after, uh, after some dramatics, the, the wastegate failed on it, but I was able to rebuild the wastegate on the track, and he finished the race. So 
that was it. So when he finished, we prepared the car from then on. And in 78, uh, uh, after Daytona, he bought, he'd gotten a new 935 from the factory. And uh, so I just jokingly said to him, you know, let me drive the 930, the old 935. And he said, well, I said, if you'll, if you'll supervise the renter riders and do all, you know, run the team and all this stuff, fine. So that's what happened. I became team manager, driver, and everything else. So what, you have to you have to explain to me what it was like to doing uh, hill climbs and time attacks in, in a 356, and then all of a sudden you're in a 935. What is that? I mean, the contrast must have been unreal. Well, it was, but the thing is that, that Speed is speed, you know, and the only problem, the only problem I had driving a 935 was the fact that you had to be very careful in slow corners because if you stepped on the gas too hard, the car would go straight ahead because of the locked differential. Uh, it had no limited slip or anything like that. It was uh, what they call a spool. Uh, also, in the rain, it got to be a little bit of a problem, but the car was, you know, it responded to whatever you wanted to do. I wasn't the fastest driver in the world, but uh, chugged along and had a good time. Well, it sounds like you must have done right. I mean, you won Sebring in 78. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. the other car uh, other car had Rolf Stommelin and Barber, and like, I think it was Manfred Shurdy. I'm not sure who the, <clears throat> their driver was, but Stommelin was awfully hard on cars. I mean, he... Two times we drove with him, uh, you know, the car ended up broken both times. And uh, is he just couldn't keep his hand off the boost knob, or is it the brakes, or what? What was? Well, he... I think he played with the boost knob too much. I mean, the greatest boost knob guy was John Fitzpatrick, but uh, but he 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 was he was a professional at it. But anyway, so because they went out, Hurley Haywood went, uh, went off the road, and so. Uh, uh, Peter Gregg was, he was chasing me at the end, but we were far enough ahead. We didn't have to get panicky. We just had to keep going and do the right thing. So that's a hell that's of a guy we to did. have in your mirror chasing you down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah. So then uh, there was, I forget, Riverside in between and stuff like that, but I didn't drive. The next race I did was Le Mans. And how did uh, and, uh, Le Mans 78 go? Well, you know, I crashed on the Mulsanne straight. <laughs> uh, what happened there? Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd been out for two hours, and uh, I was due to go in for a driver's change and tires and everything else. And the car was, uh, yeah, it was a little bit squirrely, but, you know, because the you know tires were shot basically, and so I'm going down the Moson Strait, and uh, um, there's a guy I've been sort of racing with all night long ahead of me, and I got a better turn out of Tet Rouge, and so I was I gained on him and passed him. Well, I got into the kink and going too fast for the conditions and the tires. And the rear end started to go out. Well, I way overcorrected. You don't realize how fast you're going. 
And uh, well, you get kind of velocitized, right? I mean, the most on straight is so long. Then you're when you pass somebody, it's like they're you're only going a couple miles an hour faster than yeah, they are. That's, that's exactly it. And so you lose you lose sort of come. So anyway, uh, I tried to catch it, I couldn't catch it. So it was was obvious we were going around. Well, fortunately for me, the car went around and hit the guardrail going backwards uh, at parallel to the guardrail. So we hit the guardrail, bounced off, and flipped in front a few times and then went over, uh, you know, side over side, ended up on all four wheels in the middle of the track where most people who had incidents there have gone over the guardrail and wrapped around a tree and stuff like that. So I was very lucky. It's a dangerous place to go off for sure. Yeah. And you ask, how did I get out of the car? Well, you know, you have the IMSA, we had the net on the window. And so tried to open the door, the door wouldn't open and stuff like that. And uh, was just about the time I was thinking about what to do, uh, you know, corner workers came and they looked at the situation and just grabbed the window frame, which is made out of aluminum, and just bent the thing down so I could climb. Never thought I could have climbed out the windshield. There was no windshield in the car anymore, but. Right. You know, you're not you're not mentally uh, acute at that time. So, I mean, does it does it feel like something like that when it's all happening? Is it all in slow motion? I mean, you're just kind of. Well, I, yes, it is kind of slow motion because I could feel my glasses sliding down my nose, and I couldn't lift my arm to push them back on my head. And we actually found my glasses over on the side of the racetrack the next day when we went out to look at. It. Uh, things and pick up the car and all the rest of that stuff. So. Were you injured? Um, no, I wasn't. Uh, uh, well, I had uh, the shoulder uh, straps had rubbed the skin raw on my left shoulder. My right foot got caught or wrapped up somehow in the pedals and I couldn't had a hell of a time getting it out. Uh, but that's basically uh, the only problem is I the worst part of the whole accident was the ride in the ambulance back to the hospital on the track. They, the ambulance was one, I don't know if you've been to old France, but it was one of those corrugated Citroen vans, you know, and it, all it had was some sort of a, of a box in the middle with some padding on it. And that's where you, there was no stretcher, no nothing. You laid on that. And of course you're, going over these dirt roads and bouncing off and all finally these two young kids who were couldn't have been more than 16, 17 uh, were supposed to make sure I didn't fall off so they're laying over the top of me holding on to the side of the thing and we finally made it to the hospital went upstairs Uh, this French female doctor all I can remember is that uh, she was gorgeous but uh, she uh, checked me over, did all the you know the eye stuff and all the chat. So I think you're okay. <laughs> so I went down concussion protocol back then, and I can't imagine wiping out at the kink and and a, and a Citroen shows up to take you to the hospital. It's just like oh, <laughs> I'm never going to get well, there. The most amazing thing about the whole thing was, out of all the people at the racetrack. Brian Redman, I forget who he was driving for, he stopped and asked me if I was okay and uh, then went on. So it was, that was a, a 
feature moment of the whole thing, the sort of language. Right? Somebody has that much concern for somebody, and uh, it would stop his race car in the middle of the Molson and and uh, check to make sure I was okay. Yeah, that's not a necessarily a good place to be pulled over. That's, that's well, sure. I think yeah, I think they were have flag. You know, they hadn't gotten the car out of the way yet, so they had the yellow flag and all sure. that stuff. So this car that you crashed in 78, um, obviously you guys were going to have to get another car to replace that car because it looked like, I mean, the thing was trash. There was no saving it. But a lot of the parts from that car ended up going on the uh, the car that um, ended up becoming the the old war horse or the, or the Mountain View Special, right? Yeah, the, the number 30 chassis. What, what happened was Barber had ordered a K3 from uh, Kramer Brothers. And he had a couple other 935s. He had uh, two white cars that we, well, we only ran one of them at Daytona and Sebring. Uh, but uh, he ordered chassis 0030 from the factory. We bought just a bare chassis. And then uh, the shop, at the shop, we put, it, you know, we made the car. That's why it says Made in Mountain View. So when you get um, a car from Porsche like that, when you get it, what is it? Just a bare tub, or what does this car come yeah, with? Yeah, it's, it's no, it's a tub that they had done all of the modifications to that they do did for a nine thirty four. Like they put the tubes down the the heater ducts for the oil lines, and and had the bracing all in it and stuff like that. Okay, and so we we just put all the parts, the fuel cell, and all the stuff, and uh, into it put it all together and but uh we uh we twin turboed it and uh, uh so that's the thing that, I mean, that car as a 935 is a single turbo that was pretty rare right to have because almost every 935 you see is a twin turbo car well no we were twin turbo after all of 78 and as soon as porsche went to twin turbo we went to twin turbo the only thing that was different about our car in 77 and 78 we, my brother, he worked at Garrett Air Research in Southern California. Right. And the big problem everybody was having with the 935s was losing a turbo after six hours or something like that because KKK had designed the thing with ball bearings in, in the thing to minimize friction, I guess. Uh, but as you know, when something run, when steel runs red hot, it finally loses its its hardness. Right. So then the turbo would fail. Well, so we sent the turbos down to my brother, and they designed a a plain bearing replacement bearing to put in the thing. And so our turbos we never failed. Never failed. They only had to replace one turbo all the time, I think. But, and then the same thing happened in in when we went to twin turbo, when a twin turbo car, we replaced all the bearings and the turbos and and uh, for reliability, and it all worked. So, did you guys have uh, less boost lag with these turbos, or were they did they kind of perform similarly, but they just lasted longer? Well, they just last longer. The, the performance is basically the same. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. The on the twin turbos, uh, we changed the compressor wheels uh, also on them because uh, the standard KKK compressor wheel 
didn't perform very well at low RPM. In other words, when it's picking up, once it got to full RPM, uh, the boost was was good. So we changed the, uh, the turbo impeller turbo wheels on on the inside intake side to try and get a quicker boost. Right, and we think we did. But uh, then the other thing we did that uh, took at least one season for everybody to catch on to was we increased the size of the intercooler by almost half again half again as big, but we kept it pretty covered up so nobody could see it. And uh, so that gave us better cooling, so we had, in effect, more power and quicker response than uh, some of the other people did. So you had, your team generally was considered to be a reliable, safe team. People didn't generally didn't, you know, get into huge accidents and die, and, and you guys generally finished the races. Why do you think your team was so successful as and known for its reliability because a lot of other people just threw money at it, right? They the other were... thing is that the the other teams all had hired help. They all, you know, had mechanic here and this and there. Our team, we had only three at the end, two people originally that were paid employees. Everybody else was a volunteer and they came for the love of the sport and for the love of Porsche. They were all PCA members, most of them. And they would come uh, Tuesdays and Thursday nights. We worked from 6 to 11. And on Saturday, we worked from 8 to 4. And that's when we did all the prep on the cars. And like Martin Raffoff, you most likely know him, Mark's brother, he worked at IBM and his whole his job was replay, uh, rebuilding the the drive shafts every race and uh, making sure the bearings were all lubed and all that kind of stuff. Other guys did this and that. And uh, then when we went to the races, they all had their jobs, fewer air bottle, you know, tire change, all that kind of stuff. And their whole reward was, you know, we took them to the races and we Fed them, you know, took good care of them and all that kind of stuff, and uh, they loved it. So that was it. Do you think that their 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 reason for being there was different? So if you have hired help, they're there for the paycheck. But if you have guys that are there just to be there for the passion of it, do you think? I mean, that could be the core of you know one of the things that could have definitely helped you guys out. Well, I think it did. And an example is how loyal or or I stopped racing in eighty one because I. Basically, was out of money. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Justify it anymore. Well, I get this telephone call from Jurgen Barth saying, "Bob, are you coming to Brands Hatch?" I said, "Jurgen, why would I come to Brands Hatch?" He says, "Well, you're leading in the world championship. You've got to come to Brands Hatch." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I let the word out a little bit. And Skeeter McKittrick, who had driven with us a couple times, he had a big connection with. Flying Tiger Airlines, or which is now FedEx, of course, but and people said, "Okay, well, we'll we'll help with this and we'll help with that." And so we had the three, you know, full time employees uh, come along, and uh, uh, half the volunteers paid their own way to come to Brands Hatch to be part of the team. So it was, you know, very. Uh, 
And then the, the neat thing was is to get the brand's hatch and, you know, have a meeting of all the car owners and all this kind of stuff. And somebody hands me this envelope. Look in it. God, there's all these pound notes in there. <laughs> I said, what, what's this? He said, well, that's starting money. So they, I mean, for the European races, they pay people in, other words, in effect to bring their cars, I guess, to the track to race. So anyway, that that and the prize money we won paid for the whole trip and everything else. So it was it was good. You didn't have to go in hawk or anything. Right. Do you think that your reputation is why Paul Newman decided to race with you guys? Because he he could have raced with anyone, right? I mean, there was any any team. W- with his notoriety would have taken Paul Newman because it would have been such a boon to his, to the sponsors for the team. Why did he choose you guys? Well, he, he had raced with us once before at Daytona. We got to be pretty good friends. And so I think for, you know, Barber was, did all this stuff for, for he was hand to mouth on the money situation. Well, I think Hawaiian Tropic put up a lot of money to make, you know, to invite Paul Newman to come along. I don't think Paul Newman charged for any, but he had to be assured that he was going to have everything right and a good car and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, that was basically it. But at that particular race, Le Mans in the 79, we had five 935s. And three of yeah. them were Hawaiian traffic, right? You had the red one, which is kind of the the one that everybody sees now that Adam Carolla was. Yeah. And then you had a blue one yeah. and a yellow one, right? Yeah, and then we had two other cars. That, uh, I don't know how he, you know, was getting paid to do all this stuff. So, uh, you know, we, all we were is the crew, so we just did it. And, uh, and with Paul Newman, it was terrible because TV and every press and everything – I mean, the poor guy couldn't move. Finally, he got so bad in the race, when he would come in for a pit stop, the crew could hardly get to the car. So there, uh, there was a guy over there by the name of Moustache. He was a comedian, French comedian, and he was the guy that brought Fouquet Restaurant to to uh, Barber's team. And, and Moustache was a pretty big guy, rotund guy. And he looked at the situation at the first pit stop and said, this is, this has got to stop. So he went down to some hardware store in Le Mans and bought a couple lengths of rope. And I don't know if you remember what the pits were like in those days. They were, you know, there was concrete little, little boxes and out front were these, uh, steel pipe, about two inch diameter pipe, uh, sort of little come out of the ground, turn to go across the front of the box and then down again. And between each box, there was space for the crews to get through and stuff like that. Well, he, he tied the ropes to, since we had a couple pits there because we had more than one car, uh, he tied these ropes onto these steel pipes. And so when all the crowd got there and the car was coming in, he and another big guy would just pull the rope and pull all these guys back against the, <laughs> the wall so that w- the crew could get to the cars. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a sight. Anyway. So with the, the Hawaiian traffic car came in second, the red one. Um, yes. And because it was because you guys had a stuck wheel nut 
you guys were in the pits forever. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have won that race. Oh, yeah, we would have won the race. Yeah, because the Whittingtons in, in the Kramer car uh, had, uh, uh, they broke a, a injection pump belt. And uh, I think it was Don was able to finagle one arm uh, to get around the pit, and then they got the timing back right and all that stuff. And uh, but it, yeah, we were well out in the lead until this damn nut. And can't figure out why it had the jam, but yeah, we had to change the whole trailing arm. Yeah, you had to take the whole trailing arm off the car. Yeah, with the wheel still yep. attached to it. Well, yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably the fastest trailing arm change of all time that anybody knows of. So you guys lost by eight laps to Don and Bill. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do yeah. you think they were cheating then? Because they've it's well known that the car that their cars they definitely cheated. Do you think they cheated that year? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's, let's face it, water under the bridge, and uh, you know it. Uh, who cares if they did or not? That's their problem, and they have to live with it. And, uh, we lost the race because we had a problem that we should never have had. Right. Otherwise, we would have won the race. But uh, the Kramers were very clever rules benders and stuff like that. So yeah, who knows if they cheated or not? But Barbara sold the car to me for one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. And then Does that we come raced. With a bunch of spares and everything. I mean, is that everything you need to take the car to the track? Well, it it didn't that didn't really enter into it because you know we were still running as Barbara the Barbara team, so everything that Barbara had was available to that car. Sure. And so, and then, like you say, in '79, it became the Apple car. Yeah. What I mean, Apple has never never sponsored anything like this before or no. after that how did this how did it come about that you guys ended up getting apple as a sponsor because that's huge well two things uh, steve wozniak owned a 928 and he brought it to garrison enterprises for a service and steve jobs had a 356 but never drove it or anything like that and, but he was, he knew about Porsche. Well, the, I don't know what the title is, but the guy that designed all the brochures and ads and stuff like that, he had a 911. He came to Garrison Enterprises. So one day I said to, he and Wozniak were there picking up their cars at the same time. I said, why don't you guys sponsor a car? You know, that's one of our race cars. And, uh, they looked at each other and, well, I don't know. So, really, the guy that convinced everybody was this this art director or, or creative design director uh, convinced those guys, and he designed the car, the color scheme and everything else on the car. And he convinced them to do it. Well, it, it so happened that at, at the same time, they had built their first new gigantic campus. And so the car became the entrance was sort of the attraction here. You know, it, it got all the people gathered around and everything else. Like that. So it was just, that's the way it all happened.
All right, before we get back to Bob Gerritsen, I do want to take a minute here to talk about Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically made just for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications, all to be sent right to your doorstep. There are actually two levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrol Box Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrol Box Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. All right, and now back to Bob Gerritsen. Won the Endurance Championship. I was 48 years old. And, uh... And that was 81. That's when you won the endurance championship in, at Brands Hatch, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What was that yeah. What was that victory like? What did? How did that feel? Well, it was, I mean, I was kind of speechless. Uh, I couldn't uh, really address the PA system very well. Finally, Bobby Rahal grabbed the mic out of my hand, and he talked a little bit about it, and that was it. But, no, it was, it, uh, well, we we pretty well figured we had it in the bag. Uh, it Harold Rose had to finish, had to win, and we had to finish less than sixth to to lose it. So, uh, as it turned out, we we won. They the official results show us as second, but 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 the the car that. One thing was a Group C car that Ford had built, and was uh, this was a sort of a uh, introductory run around the track, and it had two Formula One drivers in it, and uh, there was no way you were going to be it. But anyway, <laughs> we uh, we won the IMSA race, or the, uh, the Group Five race, and uh, Gross finished third, I think, or something like that. And, uh, but at Le Mans, we had taken one of these Lolas and put a 935 engine and gearbox in the car and taken it to Le Mans. Well, we didn't have enough time to get everything tested. Was that a and common motor the, put in that car? No, no. It was, <laughs> was made for a Chevy. Right, that's what but I was we didn't, thinking. We, we didn't figure that in the state of the Chevys in those days that we could run 24 hours flat out and, and finish. So. We convinced them to we modified the car to take a nine thirty five engine, which everything was fine. It would turn out to be a great car, except that at Le Mans we couldn't get any boost, and the problem was the intercooler setup uh, had too much uh, flexure in it, and so it would would bend and, and let all the air out. So we did we never did run it. So. At that venture, Ralph Kent Cook fired me on the spot <laughs> and took his toys and went home. And so that left me to either carry on by myself or to... Uh, uh, it doesn't sound like that was your fault at all. <laughs> well, it was a design error. I should have... I, I mean, I'm an engineer. I'm supposed to figure these things out. But uh, yeah. actually, actually, we could have fixed it at Le Mans. If we would have just taken and welded, welded the intercooler to the induction system on both sides, it would have ran fine, and and we would have. I bet we would have won the race. But you know, we didn't 
didn't think. You don't. We the, the Lamar people let us take the car over to an adjacent airfield there and practice up and down and make try different things and stuff like that. And I mean, the problem was the the, the problem was so simple that none of us saw it. Right. Uh, we fixed everything else. We double checked everything else. Never thought of that problem. Because it basically was the construction was basically the same as we had run on the road on the 935 uh, race cars, but for some reason it didn't work right on on that that uh, particular thing. So looking back over all these years, over all the the the, the years that you raced back then. Um, yeah. Do you feel like that's the golden era of racing as you look at racing today, or do you think it's just different now? It was the golden era of racing for the private teams because you could buy a race car, and if you were as good engineers as the factory had, you could uh, make your car competitive with them. But nowadays, there's no way. I mean, all the hybrid technology and all this kind of stuff no independent i deal i i go quite a bit to the races uh the imsa races because bobby rahal we're still good friends and he runs the bmw team well every race i mean there are six people that fly over from munich to man the data system and the thing and how who can afford private individual can afford that anymore right right for sure um so the old warhorse has been through 26 drivers and almost 70 races um with all that history what do you think what livery do you think should be memorialized on that car as it is today well to me there's two the apple apple livery and the uh, daytona 24 hour Delivery. What was on well, that? It was blue. Uh, Sleep Cheap was one of the sponsors. It was a blue car, number nine. You know, or uh, the 50 car from from Brands Hatch. It was yellow then. I changed colors and went to yellow because Cook Woods were blue. And so didn't want to give them any credit. So, <laughs> Have you seen the car lately? Yes, I have. Uh, well, the car then went to a guy by the name of uh, Montovani in England. He's Brazilian, but lives in England. So I I drove the car at, at Rensport Reunion in in Daytona. And uh, was that an emotional experience driving the car again after all those years? Well it, well, it was great. It was fun. Uh, matter of fact, I was even able to get into my old driver's suit, which was <laughs> <laughs> so. But the thing was, the they it was supposed to be parade laps. Well, and so they had the the uh, Porsche uh, LMP2 car, the uh, DHL uh, cars out there, and they were going around. Crazy. So finally, I just went past them and tried to do some laps at speed and uh, uh, had a good time. We got out of the car and that was it. You always ask for forgiveness, not permission, right? (laughs) 
that's it. That's right. Well, what are you gonna what are you gonna do to me? Kick me out? Okay, that's fun. I've had my fun. <laughs> that, that's that's awesome. Do you uh do you regret retiring when you did? Do you wish you could have kept going? No, I don't. I don't. I uh what more can you do? You know, I did I did the best that was possible to be done in that era and that was that was just fine with me. It just seems like that era had this had this balance between danger and risk and fear and performance and racing. Like there was this balance that was there that you knew that, I mean, you got in an accident in 78, that could have been bad, you know? Yeah. So that, that was, that, that had to have been in the back of your mind when you go out and race versus now, I mean, you're covered in a carbon fiber monocoque that you can run into a wall at 200 miles an hour and walk away. So it's yeah. just, yeah. Th- that risk just doesn't seem like it's there. Like it was went back when you were racing. No, that's, that's, I agree with that. Yeah. I will ask you one more question before before we go. What do you think makes for a cool car? When you look at a car and you think it's cool, you know what does it for you? What ticks all the boxes? I would say attention to detail. Uh, well, and also shape has a huge attraction on to me on various things. And did they think of this? And uh, who thought of doing that to the car? And that kind of stuff is what intrigues me. I look more at it from an engineering point of view than than a uh, uh, artistic point of view, I think. I, I appreciate you calling, and uh, I'll be in touch again. I'm sure I can't wait to talk to you again. Well, fine. Anytime you want to talk, just fine. Take care of yourself, Bob. Thank you. Yep, bye-bye. Bye. All right, so what do you think of Mr. Bob Gerritsen. I really love the stories he has there. And what <laughs> the story you're talking about, uh, how he spun out on the Muslan Strait and they found his glasses on the side of the track the next morning. Like, I just can't, I can't comprehend how crazy that was. Yeah, it's amazing that he didn't, I mean, he should have died really? going off there. I mean, all he did is get his, he had a, what is, whatever happened to his shoulder and, you know, he had his feet tied up in the pedals. And can you imagine riding in a Citroen ambulance <laughs> on the way? So you wreck your car at 180 right. miles an hour and you get taken away in a corrugated steel ambulance with yeah. someone holding you on the back. I know. I like that, too. It's so bumpy. They had to basically <laughs> hold him on. What oh, if you man. had like a cervical spine injury or yeah, something? Yeah, not probably the most ideal. It is 1978. To be clear, so let's yeah, but I don't think the U.S. were using Citroens while you lay in a box and they hold you down. What were they using? You think they were using Ford, like they're, little yeah, Ford using vans? Like Ford vans, and they actually had a stretcher in them. I bet. Yeah, I'm imagine that. I'm sure the Germans had little Volkswagen buses or something, yeah. which still seems like a better vehicle than a Citroen. Yeah, I would agree. Very, very slow. All right, guys, head over to Patreon.com/slash/Overcrest. Watching all the new. Uh, Patreons join up and get all the exclusive content is really, really heartwarming. We really appreciate all of you guys that have done that. Uh, Hop over iTunes, leave us a five-star review so you can be entered into whatever contest we decide to do next. (laughs) Um, We really would appreciate that as well. Yeah, and uh, be sure to share your friends. Share with your friends. <laughs> yeah, bring your friends on over. Jake will be happy to. Uh, Jake will be happy to meet him. Sure, sure. Share your friends or share us with your friends. On that note, take care, guys. <laughs> Bye.